Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Miracle Larry podcast. I'm Jack Cush, the moderator of this great show, joined by a good friend, Larry Kelly, also known as Miracle Larry. In this podcast, we will give you discussion and info and interviews centered around the upside of COVID. Good afternoon, Larry Episode Kelly. Episode two, Jack. Yeah. Episode two. That's right. This should be an easy one for us, though. Yes. This one, I am the special guest. And... You know what? There's a something. No readings. No <laughs> well, you know, we got to with the budget we've got, we got to do what we can. So, uh, but the idea here is, I want to. Um, I don't know if Larry's seen all of this, but it's a podcast I did um, that was meant to get a lot of doctors interested in seeing Larry do give the keynote address at a big medical meeting I ran called Room Now Live. And I use this as sort of an introduction to his story, introduce him. And really, it did help. A lot of people were wondering, who's this guy, Miracle Larry? And so Larry did come to Dallas, do this big thing. But anyway, I'm telling my version of Larry's story. Next week, we're going to hear Larry tell his version um, that he well, gave. This is going to be the first time I hear this, Jack. So this is a, this will be a surprise for me. So. Yes, and you are you're certainly free to yeah. correct me, as, as you know. I mean, like last week, we had a... A bit of an issue, but I want to I want to do a little disclaimer. I said that you know Larry may not be right on all things. Larry, who who was um, the principal of the junior high when we went to school? Junior high. Yeah. Well, the assistant principal was Fanjoy. Okay, I stand. I, all right, let's do this. Going back to elementary school, I just wanted uh -huh. to correct you. Kindergarten, Craigo. First grade, Deuce. Second grade, Ms. Miller. Third grade, Mrs. Post. Fourth grade, Fisk. Fifth grade, Barry Misk. Sixth grade, Tony Gamboa. You know, we had, a, we had a few classes in there where we were in different classes. Yeah, Third grade, did. I had Mrs. Ennis. I think you might have been in the... Yeah, you had Ennis. I had Post. I had Post. Yeah. You, you, had, had, you were in the well-behaved student class. I think I was in the keep your eye on this knucklehead class. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> All right. So I want our, our, our audience to just tune in and just listen to this roughly 13, 14 minute um, recording of uh, what we think was a, a, a very interesting time in our lives, really the early days, the onset of, of COVID. So Larry, tell me if you can, if you can see this. With my commemorative pen from that speech, I'm gonna take notes. Okay, so here we go. I wanna tell you a story of faith. It's the story of what I did during COVID. We all know what we were doing. It was quite an experience, was it not? And while I'm quite proud of many of the things that happened in the three years since COVID, in the first three months, four months of COVID, my life was dominated by one event. Yeah, I went to clinic. I rode my bike. I climbed stairs. But I really only was focused on one thing. And it was the story of Jessica, the nurse, who met my best friend from elementary school, high school, and for life, Larry Kelly, when he was admitted to the hospital with COVID in March of 2020. 
Jessica is an ICU nurse at Mount Sinai Morningside Hospital in New York City. She was working, doing her usual shifts as the lead nurse in an ICU. You know, ICUs are crazy, and Jessica is one of those people who's the, the master um, of the ship, the chef in the kitchen, the, the calm and the storm. You know, she's been there and done it all. And March was another month. Usually they had beds, and all of a sudden things changed. Mid-April, mid, mid actually mid-March, um, they went from having, you know, extra beds to having no beds. Of course, what was on everyone's mind at the time was COVID. It was taking over. It was starting to dominate. The emergency rooms were full of patients. The ICUs were quickly without space, without materials, without staff. So they went from having six empty beds one night to having no beds and six extra gurneys in the hallway the next. One of those patients was my friend Larry, who Jessica took in as an inpatient. She was um, surprised by this man because on one hand, he was in severe respiratory distress. He had contracted covid uh, in the few weeks prior um, and became progressively sick over a week. Um, initially went to a walk-in clinic, sent home. Next day, ended up going back to the hospital, was admitted and went straight to the ICU. He's one of those patients who, on one hand, was joking and flirting, and on the other hand, was absolutely panicked. Jessica said that he was forever memorable because he was different. He had a confidence about him, but he worried um, and his eyes showed nothing but fear. Of course, Larry could only see um, Jessica's eyes because she was in full PPE um, and he described it as a, a spacesuit and he could only say to this mask and eyes, are you gonna take care of me? please take care of me, what's going to happen to me? And again, she reassured him, she did the job, uh, supported him. She went home after checking him in that night and came back two days later and he was then on a respirator. He went downhill real quick. And what ensued was usual ICU um, disaster, you know, hypotension, severe bilateral pneumonias, um, hypoxia, uh, you know, worries of cytokine storm. And of course, they knew what the cause of this was, but they didn't know how to treat it. There was no effective therapy at the time. Other than respiratory support and cardiovascular support, the only thing they could do was protect themselves from these infected patients. And it was really quite uh, a war scene because all of them um, saw more deaths than, than they had possibly seen in any recent era, you know, that patients were coming in, dying, coming in, dying, coming in, and it was unusual that people lived, and when they did, the outcomes were not good, and again, what are we going to do? So what did she do? She did the job. She did what all of the ICU staff did. They supported the patient as best they could, while they, you know, dealt with spiking fevers, scary labs, 
um, lungs that were whited out and, you know, and trying to explain what hypotension and being unresponsive meant to the family. This was horribly shocking to the family. They didn't know what to do. Of course, they called me, um, their family friend, and, and I called the hospital and talked to <clears throat> many of the nurses, many of the doctors, um, and they were all um, very concerned and very helpful. But what I heard as an experienced health professional was absolute terror in the voices of everyone I spoke to. I mean, they were beaten down. They were like in the middle of saving Private Ryan, landing on the beach of Normandy. There was no way out. There was no end to this disaster. They sounded like they hadn't slept in days. And every conversation I had, whether it was with a resident or an ICU attending or a nurse practitioner who was volunteering from the Carolinas and went up to New York City to help out, they all did their best, but they all sounded so drained, so beaten. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to them, asking them how they're doing, trying to help them by sending them, you know, some pizza or ice cream or something like that. Um, but the thing that stood out to me was there was one nurse who sounded different. And that was this nurse, Jessica. She was in control. She kept it together. She was the encouraging one. She was the one who communicated with the family, communicated with me freely. She was the one who was thankful and optimistic. And, and it was really quite amazing to talk to this person in the midst of the first month of COVID in New York City, where there are more deaths going on per day than anywhere else in the world. So I was able to communicate with the staff, tell the family what was going on, get a day-by-day, play-by-play account of the disaster that was occurring. What was happening? Well, he had horrible pneumonias that weren't resolving despite being intubated and on high levels of PEEP, high levels of oxygen. He you know, was unresponsive, unresponsive to pain. He was seizing. He had you know, brain bleeding. It was just all bad. It was horribly bad. Um, so bad that, you know, the family was told he's probably not going to survive. I like to be an optimist, but I had to tell him the same thing. But went on, what went on in the background with the family and Larry's 8 million friends, because he truly has 8 million friends, was a tremendous amount of prayer, concern, and Big thinking, not like we hope he lives, but no, the big thinking was he's going to leave the hospital because that's what Larry does. He's one of those guys. He's a survivor. He's stronger than everyone else. He's going to leave the hospital. He's going to leave the hospital as smart and as funny and as verbose, um, as much as a, ra a raconteur as ever. He's not going to have brain damage. He's not going to die. And that's what we assumed was going to happen. So he went, unfortunately, from ICU to ICU, from different unit to different unit. And Jessica struggled to stay in touch with this man um, and lost sight of him after about five weeks in the hospital. It was amazing. He had lived five weeks. But again, he was still not doing well. 
you know, and he had actually received a number of the newer medicines. And I think that they were one of the first people to do proning and talk about ECMO and other things. But, you know, other patients came and gone, but Larry persisted. Even though it didn't look like he would live, he did seem to persist. But, you know, March was gone, April was gone, and Jessica lost sight of him. And then sometime in June, you know, I was following Larry's progress and transfers to different units. Um, and it was always, you know, two steps forward and three steps back kind of things. But something changed. And the big change was that Larry lived. And it really was a miracle. Sometime in June, I called Jessica on the phone and said, hi, do you remember me, Dr. Cush? She says, oh my God, Dr. Cush, yes, I remember you. What happened to Larry? Where is he? Is he alive? And you could tell she was incredibly apprehensive. And I paused. Really, it was an emotional pause because I, I knew she cared. And I said, oh yeah, he's alive. He's back to being that talkative, flirtatious person who now wants to run the ICU. He wants to remote control. He wants to know what happened in the last three months, what he missed baseball season. You know, again, a man who shouldn't have lived is now living and living large, even though he just got extubated uh, after 50 plus days and of being on a, on a respirator and after 40 plus days of being in a coma. She was shocked. She was speechless. Um, he went from being gravely ill to probably being in the grave to now being sort of the light of her day, the light of her you know, family's life, my life. It's an amazing story. And he has since then been called Miracle Larry. He's been written up in the New York Times and Newsday and been on multiple TV networks. Larry did, in fact, wake up with full mentation. He did walk out of the hospital. He, in fact, walked out of the hospital and they wheeled him down Amsterdam Avenue, some 10 or 12 blocks to his home, to a crowd and an entourage of people yelling Miracle Larry. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable story. So again, I think that I tell you this story because Larry gets to tell his story on Saturday at Room Now Live. He's gonna tell you the story of COVID-19, Miracle Larry, and Invictus. That's going to happen Saturday afternoon at 5.15 Central Time. You know, I, this is a story of faith, the faith of those hospital workers and Jessica. You know, they do the job every day, and, you know, ICU work is not easy. It's full of disappointment and heartache, but they keep doing the job, and they have faith that what they do will end up in positive outcomes in a few, and that's what's worth it. And you would see that in, you know, in the early days of COVID, there would always be these news reports of some one patient who survived after 30 days, 40 days, 60 days in the hospital. And they'd wheel them out through an entourage of hospital workers, all in masks, all clapping, all cheering, 
And they're cheering for the patient who's going home and who survived. But you know what? They're also cheering for themselves because there weren't many victories early on in April and March and May of 2020. And they celebrated those victories because they know they were responsible for them. So despite all the dominance and negativism associated with COVID, uh, the early days of COVID were a tremendous story, story of Miracle Larry, um, who lived and is now um, out in the world um, telling the story. He got to meet Jessica. They've become fast friends. Um, and he's done great things with his experience. Uh, I think that he's an example that um, many people can learn from just by hearing his story. So now Larry has even more friends than he's ever had. He's always been everybody's best friend. He just happens to have been my best friend for the last 60 years since kindergarten. There we are. Hmm. I've never heard that, Jeff. Yeah. So it. I tell you, people signed up to the meeting. They all came to see Miracle Larry give the keynote address. It was great. And and it was a primer because when you tell a story, it's it's really deep into the whole story. It's you know some of the beginning, but this the whole your your version is so much different. But mine, that's sort of what I saw from my end. I'm sure if we got to tell you know your wife and daughter story, it would be just as emotional, just as hard. Yeah, and that. You know, I, I think with this podcast, we will tell a lot of those stories. I, I think for me, um, the uh, it, in terms of in terms of the press, um, I I think I just like happenstance. I always talk about it. I came along at the right time. Um, the first three or four months of COVID, um, there were not many success stories and, oh, oh. Yeah. and, um, and I, so I think my story resonated because I was this lone bright spot um, during, during a very hopeless time so I, and uh, you know that there are others everybody has everybody has a story everybody has a COVID story sure um, sure you know but this, what we're going to do on this is tell mine but uh, it, what was great was there were TV networks there as you're walking out of the hospital, right? Yeah. It was I was in Dallas in my clinic, and I saw this all go down on Facebook Live, including <clears throat> the Amsterdam Avenue parade that was my, there. My brother filmed it. My brother filmed it and put it on Facebook Live. It was yeah. just, it was mind-blowing. Absolutely yeah. mind-blowing. Well... <laughs> It was it was mind blowing for me to everybody says it was mind blowing. I said I'm in the same position. It was a very unbelievable. Um, but you know, my wife had two days before I was released after 128 days. Uh, my wife had called and I said, uh, "Do you think anybody's going to be there?" And she said, uh, "Well, they say I don't know. I think so. And, you know, they say people are coming." And uh, you know, I got wheeled to that glass, and there were, you know, 
four TV networks and a documentary crew and 150 people waving signs and wearing masks. And uh, it, it was, uh, I, I wasn't really sure that, that I hadn't died. <laughs> so leading yeah. up to this, you know, you were going through um, rehab at the time you had gone from ICU to ICU to ICU to pulmonary step down as you got off the respirator, then to rehab. And so you're getting better and becoming more and more like Larry and looking like Larry. I can remember the first time that you were still on the respirator and you were doing a face FaceTime with everyone and you were not shaven. You had lost weight. Your hair was crazy. I mean, it was just quite a show. Winkle. It was like, you know, I, you know, I, I was clean shaven. I looked like this when I went in and when I wake up, I've got this beard in my hair. It's, it's quite a, it's quite a scene. But anyway, in thinking about this and the days leading up to your, obviously you're looking forward to getting the heck out of the hospital and, and envisioning what that's going to be like. But did what you envision match at all what happened as you were discharged from the hospital and walked home? Um, I didn't walk, well, I was wheeled home. Um, I only walked outside the door and sat in a wheelchair. <laughs> but you officially yeah. walked out of the hospital? Yes. I, I did, you know, and that, and that, well. Answering many prayers. Well, well, I, real fast, I'll tell you the story by that. Um, it got spread around the hospital, uh, who I was, and there was a crowd gathering outside. So the staff was like, well, well, what's going on? What's going on? So there was this big entourage of staff that came with me as I was wheeled out. Again, I don't know what I'm gonna see. And uh, I get to the glass, and uh, my occupational therapist is on one side, and my speech therapist is on the other side. And uh, the physical therapist didn't work that day, so she wasn't there. But uh, Lane was my occupational therapist. And was, we got wheeled to the door, and I looked out, and all these people and these cameras. And uh, I made the decision right there at the glass. And again, you know, I, I, I don't even know how I spoke to anybody because I was just on automatic pilot. I was just a, like this, this tunnel vision focus, of just answer the question, just answer the question. The, uh, but when I got to the glass, I turned to Lane and I, up to this point when I went home and you talk about me wanting to go home, do you want the truth? I didn't think I was ready to go home. They argued with them for a long time that, uh, you know, I, I, I've only taken seven steps. I, I don't want everybody waiting on me at home. I, you know, um, anyway, so when I got to the glass in the wheelchair, I turned to Lane. I said, I saw the crowd. I said, Lane, uh, give, me, um, give me the cane. And she said, uh, why? I said, I want to walk out. I want to walk out. She goes, no, that's not a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea. I said, no, I want to walk out. I'll sit in the chair when I get outside, but I want to walk. And, uh, she said, I, I don't know. I said, and this is what I said. It was just like instinct. I said, I have to show them that I'm trying. I have to show them that I'm trying. So I made the decision to walk when I got to the glass and saw the crowd. So, anyway. Yeah. yeah. I want to end with the um, what are your thoughts on what everything that you didn't see, meaning the earliest days of COVID, we knew what was going on. 
we knew what the complications were going to be. You know, the cytokine storm, the liver failure, the blood clots, the heart attacks, the kidney disease, you know, all the things that can happen. We knew what was causing us. We knew what was going on. We had no idea how to treat it. So, you know, there's this line in medicine when you're just starting to learn things, see one, do one, teach one. Man, this was the best example of that. They were just coming up with things day by day. You were one of the first people to receive Actemra, an IL-6 inhibitor. You were the first people to see receive steroids. They didn't give you remdesivir because it was too new and you didn't meet the protocol to receive the new antiviral drug, which by the way, only gives a little bit of benefit. It wasn't really the lifesaver as much as the drugs that you did get. And then the proning that Jessica advocated for, you know, all those things. So, but the idea was you were playing out an illness for which no one knew how to treat. And, uh, What's your thoughts on that? I just, uh, I, I recognize and I, I hope, um, I, I was sort of a guinea pig and, and not in a bad sense. I'm not saying, you know, um, cause they were, everything they did was to, uh, to keep me alive. And, uh, but it was sort of hit and miss. And I, I, I hope they learned, and I think they did. I was the second patient in New York. So um, that's how early I was. That's how, you know, when I went to the hospital, even my, my family was like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, uh, what, what, COVID wasn't on everybody's minds when I went into the hospital. It, was, it became very quickly, but it, it was that early. So the, the numbers back then were something like this. If you got COVID, you know, you had a, I don't know, one in 100, one in 1,000 chance of dying. If you got COVID and you went to the hospital and were admitted, now you were up to 10%, right? If you were then put in the ICU, the odds went up higher. If you were in the ICU and on a respirator and had any comorbidities, heart disease, high blood pressure, four pounds overweight, your chances of dying were like closer to 65%, right? And that's just across the board, not even looking into how bad your pneumonia was, how bad your low oxygen levels were, hypoxia, you know, so all these numbers, all these things that happened to you so fast were just scary as hell. And that's what I was hearing in all those voices of, of the doctors and the nurses. And I, and I, I didn't think I stressed it enough, but I spoke to a few nurses, nurse practitioners who left their job and answered the call from the governor and the mayor to come to New York and help us out. And they were those, those nurses, these nurse practitioners and PAs who came in and did shifts and they took care of you and they would talk to me. And boy, you know, how brave is that? How loving is that? Unbelievable, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that later. We'll do everything. We'll do everything step by step and just tell the story because there's a lot to talk about all along the way. But those volunteers, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still in contact with both of them from when I was sent to the, you know, even post palliative care. I sent the palliative care first. And then I was sent to this new unit where I was the first patient. Um, and there was a visiting nurse from North Carolina, her name was Erica, and uh, a young man from Texas. 
his name was Scott, and uh, they uh, they came to New York knowing that this was an airborne virus that was killing people, and they came anyway. Right. It's uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, and we'll talk about all that. There's a lot. You know, I just, I, Jack, you know, I, I just have such an appreciation for for anything medical now. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, the, uh, I, the nurses are the new heroes in America. And, uh, just as much as any other service right. or anything. And we'll, we'll talk about that at some length, but. You know, this is a nice second one. I never saw that before, Jack. And thank you for those uh, amazing words. And I saw something that you wrote a long time ago. I don't know if you still have it, but uh, you, I, I don't know where you posted it or where I read it, but uh, it was very moving. Uh, and Jessica actually wrote, Jessica had a letter that she wrote to the entire Mount Sinai staff. She sent out in an email and uh, that was, Pretty, uh... Yeah, we're, we're going to talk to her in future episodes. I actually listened to her on a podcast. I want to say it was recorded on March the 26th, about a week after your admission. And she's telling stories about COVID. She's talking about you. Mm -hmm. you. You know she's talking about you. And and we'll get we'll talk to her further. Anyway, next week, everyone, I want you to uh, let your friends and family know about the Miracle Larry podcast. Um, next week, we're going to hear Larry's keynote address at a medical meeting where he's going to tell his side of the coma. We, uh, we, we had a little technical difficulties getting the website up on YouTube, but we're working on it. But it is available, total audio. Um, right. anywhere it'll, be available. it'll be available on YouTube soon as well. So uh, that'll happen. But the podcast is what's uh, mainly going to be consumed right now. But all right, Larry, we'll see you again next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Jack, you know, I I, I, I write all my letters, I end this, and all my emails to anything. I end up, I, I, I sort of want to do it on this podcast. Uh, keep the faith, it's all good. That it is. Yeah. All right, folks. Thank you, Thanks. Jack. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.